changemakers. You see them all around you. They're in your communities, your schools, your workplace. They do powerful things and they make change happen. In this series, we interview the many changemakers who built up their policy toolkits at Princeton and went on to change their communities. These are their stories. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Changemakers. Well, today I'm super excited to be joined by Rich Harwood, who's the president and founder of the Harwood Institute for Public Innovation. It's a nonprofit that focuses on equipping communities to tackle shared challenges. Over the past 30 years, Rich has developed a new philosophy and practice of how communities can solve shared problems, create a culture of shared responsibility, and deepen civic faith. Today, Rich is spreading a vision for what it takes to create communities' lives in an America that reflects the best in us and the best of us. His newest book, which we will talk about today, is Unleashed, A Proven Way Communities Can Spread Change and Make Hope Real for All. It provides a framework for creating a civic culture that can lead to positive impacts. Rich graduated from SPIA in 1984, which was then known as the Woodrow Wilson School, with his MPA. Welcome to the show, Rich. Rose, it's good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I, I want to start the discussion with a question that I've been asking all of my guests on this show, because we're sort of living in this era where there are just so many policy issues to tackle. I'm wondering from where you sit, what you think the most pressing issue is uh, facing us today. Well, you know, we're coming out of, as we all know, coming out of four crises, unprecedented, simultaneous uh, a global pandemic, economic upheaval, systemic racism and social injustices, and a political crisis that started long before the last president. And I think the fundamental choice we face today uh, is can we reimagine and recreate our lives, our communities, and this country moving forward so that we put ourselves on a more equitable, fair, just, inclusive and hopeful path forward. I don't think um, there's an option of going back to normal as so many people like to talk about, because as you know, Rose, and as your listeners know, uh, normal wasn't all that good for a whole lot of folks in America uh, before these crises even occurred. And these crises laid bare the inequities and disparities that are plaguing our country. So I happen to believe that the most fundamental challenge we face is whether or not we have the courage and the wisdom to come together and prove to ourselves that we actually can come together and get things done and restore our faith in ourselves and in one another that we can remake this country moving forward. That's such a good point. You know, the the term civic culture, which uh, was mentioned in your bio, I, I feel like it's tossed around a lot lately, but I don't know if it's very well defined. What, what it do you mean when you talk about creating healthier civic cultures? Maybe that ties in sort of a little bit to what you were just saying. Sure. I think, you know, for the Institute, we've defined it. We've isolated nine factors that create what we call an enabling environment in communities, the ability of communities to work. And so it's everything from uh, the norms of a community to uh, the sense of shared purpose to the uh, different types of leaders that communities need to, to build trust and to create change, the types of catalytic organizations that communities need, um, 
these factors are, are like an ecosystem, right? Uh, in, an, in the natural environment, it would be air and water and land and, 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 um, and habitat. In our communities, we have ecosystems too, which are made up of these factors that I was just talking about. The thing is, is that too often we spend all of our time thinking about programs and initiatives and strategies. And we wonder why in some communities, these things never take off, why they never gain traction, why they never make a difference, why they never fulfill the promises that were made to people um, in these communities and in our society. And what the Institute has discovered is that far too often we don't pay enough attention to the underlying conditions that create the environment in which these strategies and programs and initiatives um, live, the, the underlying conditions that make them work, that make them go. And that's what we mean by civic culture. That's really helpful. Thank you for explaining it. And, and it's so true. You know, could you talk a little bit more about your work with the Harwood Institute? And, and maybe we can even get into how it, uh, how the work there influenced the writing of your latest book, Unleashed. Sure. Um, you know, I started this when I was 27 years old. It was just three years after I graduated from Princeton. And um, I believe that we needed a different way to solve problems in communities and in society. And so, um, you know, when I started Rose, all I, I didn't start with an answer. I started with eight questions. And I remember putting them up on a whiteboard, eight different vectors in a sense. And everyone I had talked to told me, just focus on one of those questions or one of those vectors. like. What does it take to create leaders in communities or the types of organizations we need to build change? Or what does it take to build public will? Or what does it take to authentically engage people? And it seemed to me that these things were so interrelated that we needed to understand, yes, each individual vector, but how they related to one another and the dynamics that were embedded in them. And so we spent the last 30 years innovating around what does it take to find answers to these questions? And then what does that mean for how change occurs in communities and in society um, uh, as we're doing this work? And, and that's what the Institute's sort of been focused on for the last 30 years. I'm always so impressed when someone at the age of 27 has an idea and then goes after it like that. And this is such an important issue, too. So kudos to you for taking that leap way back when. You know, it's interesting. It, you know, Princeton had a lot to do with that. Um, I know people often say, so what did you learn, you know, in graduate school? Yeah. And what special skills did you learn or what special courses did you take? And, you know, when I think of my experience at Princeton, yes, there were great courses and, and great things that I learned, but, but what actually it, inculcated in me and developed further in me is this kind of can-do spirit. You know, um, I remember the assistant dean of placement, Jay, uh, Jay Blyman, who when I was at Skidmore College, where I went to undergraduate, um, I was up for a Truman scholarship and he was head of the committee and they selected me. And he called me before um, I graduated from Skidmore and said, I, I know you're looking at public policy schools. I want you to come to Princeton. And he convinced me to do that. And while I was there, he was continually encouraging me to sort of think about things and to expand my horizons. And he actually introduced me to an alum of Princeton 
who became a mentor in helping me think about uh, my interest in starting the Institute. Um, when I was there, I was really interested in politics. And another assistant dean, a woman named Ingrid Reed, um, I went to speak with her and she said, well, let me introduce you to um, someone uh, in the community of Princeton who's involved in state politics. And, and he got me involved in New Jersey politics, which led to me working in Trenton to help manage a congressional race while I was in school. So I was sitting in statistics class at Princeton writing speeches for this congressional candidate and thinking about managing his campaign which then led me to go work on the Mondale campaign when he was running for president, which was filled with all sorts of Princeton alums as well. Um, I worked for a professor, Richard Nathan, who was one of the best domestic policy people at the school at the time. And, um, and he encouraged me to do a, a special project on industrial policy and, and really encouraged me to take an entrepreneurial view of of that work and to be really um, audacious about thinking about what could be an industrial policy for the country. And I was, you know, I was a kid, I was 24 years old, but he believed in me and he said, go for it. And so all of these things, I think, changed the trajectory of my life while I was at Princeton. They led me to do all these different things and they ultimately led me to start the Institute at 27 and now at 60, I'm still doing it. Um, and so I, I've, I'm, I'm enormously grateful to the people, for the people I met at Princeton and especially the ways in which they believed in you and believed specifically in me and encouraged me to take risks and encouraged me to think beyond what I knew before I came there um, and encouraged me to step forward and, and make something happen. That's fantastic. And it's neat hearing about, you know, the people that were influential when you were getting your MPA. I actually met Ingrid recently on a Zoom, you know, a farewell Zoom for someone I had never met her, but I had heard her name before. And it's it's just sort of neat how each generation of people who come through the school have their own mentors that they look up to, the own the faculty members that have pushed them. And I would say it's it's a, a thread that is woven through time, which is which is great. Um, and, and if I could just say, you know, one of the, the great benefits of Princeton, um, I won't name other uh, competitive schools, but one of the great things about Princeton is that it has maintained a commitment to remaining relatively small. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as, as you know, there's no way to get lost at <laughs> at Princeton. There's no way that you can hide. There's no, look, I had problems in statistics. I was telling you, I was writing speeches in statistics. I wasn't doing all too well in the class either, maybe because I was writing speeches. And I remember getting called to another dean's office where they said, you know, Rich, um, your grades aren't all that great in this class. Um, we want you to do well. We want to be supportive. We love the fact that you're going to Trenton and working on these campaigns. And so we were going to make sure you have a great tutor. And so I did. I got a tutor and he worked with me uh, religiously <laughs> and, and fervently and, uh, and helped me get through that class. But that's the type of place it was. And I assume it still is. And not all schools are like that. Not all places are like that. And, um, and I really appreciate that 
that Princeton has maintained its commitment uh, to focusing on students, on their growth, on their development, and, uh, and not just on their grades or on the size of the school. Yeah, and just, I guess, to continue with the, the Princeton theme, that you did answer one of my questions I had in mind, which is sort of how, how it prepared you for your career. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about leadership, because you're in a leadership role, and I'm wondering how, in, if in any ways, uh, Princeton prepared you for that, and then maybe what you've learned along the way of the journey of your career about leadership, what it takes to be a good leader. Well, I think what I learned through my experiences at Princeton, what I've learned over time is that, uh, you know, it's about how you show up. And I think far too many people show up thinking that they're at the center of the action, that um, their ego is at the center of the action, and that I think in order to be a really good leader, you have to learn to take yourself out of the center. You have to learn that it's not about you. It's in the case of the work that I do, it's about, it's about people and the communities that we're working with. They're at the center. We're in service of their lives and their lived experiences and their aspirations for a better life. And when you take yourself out of the center, I think as a really good leader, one needs to understand that listening, you know, we think about leadership as just simply making decisions, and it is about making decisions. But in order to make good decisions, sound decisions, relevant decisions, significant decisions, I think a prerequisite is that one needs to become a very deep listener, a discerning listener, the ability to hear things that people are saying, and in fact, to hear things that people aren't saying, but are trying to articulate, and to be able to make discernments about that so that you can really understand what's at issue, and you can really understand what is um, is needed, and you can really begin to zero in on, um, on making good choices, because I think um, leadership is about making choices, and being ruthless about those choices because you can't be all things to all people, which I think too many leaders try to do and try to be. And so, so I think those are some of the, the components of, um, of leadership. Um, and, and, and if I can say one other thing, or sure. maybe two, um, I think all these things require, you know, these are overused words, but I think, when you really think about them and you think about the meaning, uh, they're important. I think, I think what does it really mean to have courage to, you know, again, as I was saying before, we try to be all things to all people. And I think leadership and decision-making is about putting a stake in the ground and knowing what you stand for and what your values are and what you believe and taking a risk of saying, now that I've listened, now that I've made some discernments, I'm going to make some choices and put a stake in the ground and risk uh, put take a risk in moving forward. And I'm going to make myself visible in doing that and say in a way, here I am. This is what we're going to do. I think another thing, though, is necessary if we want to have courage. And it's something we give lip service to in our society and we don't have nearly enough of. And I think that's humility. I think in order to make good decisions and to be a good leader, you need to know that you don't have all the answers. 
that you need other people, that when you put that stake in the ground, there is going to come a time and there will be a time when either external conditions change and you need to pick up that stake and move it, or when you recognize or realize that maybe you made some wrong choices, that you misread the context, and that you still need to pick up that stake and move it, and that you need to do it oftentimes in public, and you need to acknowledge that you made a mistake or that you learned something new. And so I think having the courage to do certain things and the humility um, are really essential elements of good leadership and good decision-making. I feel like that's a perfect soundbite that I could just carry with me, you know, when I need a little nudge or a reminder. So thank you for sharing that. Um, I guess turning back a little bit to the Institute, what current project or initiative are you working on right now that you're perhaps most excited about? You know, I'm really excited about uh, an initiative we're doing in Jackson, Mississippi, and in another in Reading, Pennsylvania, and uh, another in, in Lexington, Kentucky. You know, we're working all, all across the country, but the one that I would probably say I'm, I'm most excited about is one that we've been working on for, for a number of years now in Clark County, Kentucky. It's, uh, it's a rural area. Um, it's, when we started working there, they were, the community was stuck. Um, they were looking backwards in many respects. It was divided by race. It was divided by geography. It was divided by um, religious beliefs. It was divided by newcomers versus old timers. Um, and in just two and a half years, Rose, people there came together and decided to focus on their shared aspirations for moving forward. This was all using our work, but really they were the ones who did all the work, not us. And in just two and a half years, they made the most progress that I've ever seen a community make. They began to attack their opioid and meth challenges. They had kids who felt abandoned, who were going to blue ribbon schools um, where they created sports leagues that were really about the development of the character of those kids. And those, those leagues grew from 400 kids to 800 to 1,000 to, to well over 1,000 and where they're marshalling volunteers and adults to come together um, to support these kids. And that these this program was actually started by various religious institutions who were once competitive with one another and in theological debates about whose faith was right, um, and were competitive about putting people in seats on Wednesday night and Sunday mornings they came together and actually worked together to, to launch this. Um, they've created all sorts of educational programs that have um, dealt with trauma and mindfulness because a lot of the kids who are growing up there um, have experienced trauma. So they, they've revitalized their downtown, which was stuck um, back 20, 30, 40 years ago. Uh, so they've taken all of these actions by unexpected um, people coming together in, in partnerships that couldn't have been predicted before and doing things that couldn't have been imagined before. Um, and the narrative of this community has shifted from, we need to look back to reclaim what we once have to we can actually create a future that helps us move forward and create something we never had in the past. That's a powerful example. And I appreciate you sharing it. 
you know, as I'm listening to you talk, I'm wondering for our listeners, how can they take action in their communities to sort of build bridges in a time when neighbors, you know, seem reluctant to talk to one another or politicians aren't cooperating with each other? What can they do? Well, you know, I think there are um, things we can do, first of all, in our in our own lives about how we talk with one another rather than arguing endlessly about our disagreements what i would urge your listeners to think about is to is to focus first on questions about what are our shared aspirations for let's say our lives what are our shared aspirations for our family what are our shared aspirations for our neighborhood and just by reframing the discussion we can shift the the frame of reference from those things we disagree about and the problems that we encounter to those things that we share in common and what would we like to create together? We don't need to agree on everything to get moving. We just need to find a couple of things that we can agree on so that we can get in motion and develop the confidence that we can actually make change together. And that's true in our personal lives. It's true in our family life. It's true in our neighborhoods. It's true in our communities. And so I think if we can begin to reframe what we're focused on and begin to get in motion if we can begin to start to take small steps forward as a, as opposed to always trying to create big comprehensive change because we think that's really sounds cool and complicated and sophisticated um, if we can focus more on creating a trajectory of hope as opposed to thinking we're going to solve all our problems at once then i think we have a better shot at restoring our belief in ourselves and and in one another and in creating the kinds of lives and communities that we want to live in that, as you said in the in the intro, reflect the best in us and the best of us, not our divisions, our polarization, our bigotry and hatred. I couldn't agree more. Well, Rich, we're just about out of time, but I did want to give you a moment to talk about your new book if you if you want to promo that a bit and tell us a bit more about it. Sure. And thanks. I'm really excited about it. It, you know, it's, it's funny, it came out of a, uh, a conversation in a community that I was having with someone about um, the Institute's 30 years of work and how we might demonstrate its impact, which led to the Institute undertaking a 30 year impact study of, of our work across nine or 10 communities. And what we discovered in that was that uh the way in which change um, happened in communities is that it started often with small actions that then catalyzed a whole chain reaction of other actions and ripple effects throughout a community, which then moved through various networks, which then started to spread throughout the rest of the community. You know, we just came through COVID, which was a negative contagion what we found is that our work spread like a positive contagion through these different communities like Clark County, Kentucky, which I was just talking about. And so this book is about um, how does that happen? How, going back to your question before, how in your own community can you start to play a role in that? Um, and how can we do this in such a way that we can actually get on a more equitable, fair, and just, and inclusive, and hopeful path forward in our individual communities and as a country. And so the book is both a frame for how to think about that and also really practical stories about how others can do it so that you can imagine how you yourself in your own community can do it as well.
We'll be sure to link to it in the show notes so that people can check it out. I guess one last question in the time we have remaining, I sort of like to close these with advice for the next generation or even those who are maybe thinking about a work shift, you know, changing jobs, changing careers. What advice do you have for those people in, you know, the times we're living in today? You know, I, uh, one of the things I love doing the most in my work is, is mentoring um, young people. And um, when, and I've talked to lots of folks at Princeton in the last few years about their move into the workplace. And my advice always is um, don't simply jump at the job that sounds the best or the organization that sounds the most prestigious. Uh, When you're looking for work, you should be interviewing those places as much as they're interviewing you. And you want to find a place, if you can, where you might find a really good mentor. Uh, Because there's nothing more valuable, particularly in your younger years, but actually throughout your life, um, to find people who take you under their wing and help you learn, who will push you, who will engage you to think beyond yourself, much like the folks at Princeton did for me. And... um, and to find a place that has a positive culture where you can learn and grow and where, yes, you'll have guidance, but you'll also have independence to, to spread yourself and to, to think about things and to take risks and chances and to maybe even fail along the way and then pick yourself up and get back moving. And so my biggest advice to people is find the right fit, find the right fit with a good mentor find the right fit with a good culture, and make the most of your initial positions. Um, There'll always be time to work in the most prestigious places and the most, um, uh, the best sounding places, Uh, but there won't always be great times to find the best mentors and the great, the best cultures so that you can get off to a really good start. That's such good advice. And, you know, it's interesting. You can find mentors in places you might not even expect. I I think back to my own career and I had a, you know, one of my very first jobs, I was terrified of my boss. You know, she just was this very powerful woman and very smart and sharp. And, um, you know, she still remains my mentor to this day. And I still call her when I need advice or, you know, and it's been great having this relationship throughout the course of my career. And I, I never would have guessed that, that, you know, we'd be able to maintain that over time, but it's been terrific. So I, I completely agree with the importance of mentorship. Well, Rich, this has been a great conversation and I feel like we could talk for another hour, but um, we're about out of time here. Any closing thoughts before we wrap up? Thanks so much for having me. And, and you know, this has allowed me to once again think about the impact uh, that Princeton, the profound impact that Princeton had on me. And that's, uh, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to have that chance to think about it again. It's always good to reflect on times from before, you know. So thank you again, Rich. I really appreciate it. Take care. You too. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Changemakers, a podcast produced by the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. This show is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Rose Huber. Listen and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you find podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time.